For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Romans 1, verse 16 through 20, which I entitled, Marks of the Creator Found in Creation. This comes directly from Romans 1, verse 16 through 20. And what we're going to talk about primarily tonight is the concept that science and Christianity or belief in God are compatible. I think in our culture today, there's a belief that science disproves God or that those two things can't exist um, in terms of uh, people's belief. And yet Paul argues that when you actually look out into creation, it tells us something different. Let's backtrack a little bit and review what we looked at a couple weeks ago, starting in verse 16, where Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Remember, we define this term, gospel, which simply means the good news. And the Bible does express good news, that we no longer have to try to work our way to God, that It's not about us trying to fix the moral balance between our bad deeds and our good deeds, but that God in His love and mercy has decided to purchase salvation for us through what Jesus has done on the cross. And so the good news that the Bible brings to us is this idea that we can come to Him and simply by believing in Him, not blind faith, but placing our trust in what he's done based on real evidence that we can indeed have salvation. So that's the good news of Jesus Christ. Something that when you read from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end, there's this message of redemption that God wants to bring to us. And he specifies that, first of all, he prioritizes his people whom he's been working with for millennia now, the Jews, But then us as non-Jewish people, most of us here anyway, that we get to participate in these promises. He goes on in verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Last week or a couple weeks ago, we looked at another translation, the New Living Translation, which I think smooths this out a little bit better and helps us understand Paul's intent where it says this good news tells us about how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. In other words, you receive salvation through faith and you experience spiritual growth and transformation by faith. So it's faith all the way through. And finally, he says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul quotes an Old Testament text, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, to show that it's always been about faith. The Old Testament doesn't contradict the New Testament, that in fact they cohere with one another. They work in concert with one another. Okay, so we press on here in verse 18 and 19, which is really at the heart of the passage we're looking at tonight. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 
So we want to camp out on this a little bit. First of all, he says that there is a natural tendency within us to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, we all have this sense that God exists, that he's real. But there is an active suppression of that truth in part because we know what the implications of that are for our lives. That if we acknowledge that he's real, that he's personal, that he wants a relationship with us, that has implications for our lives. That it means that if we invite him into our lives, then we're inviting him to interfere, to maybe give direction, input maybe that we don't want. I think about this idea of suppressing the truth. I don't know if you've ever tried to take like a volleyball, swim it down to the bottom of the pool. You know, it takes incredible force to try to get it to the bottom of the pool. And as soon as you let go of the ball, it just rockets out of the pool. And in the same way, I think as human beings, no matter how hard we try to suppress the truth, that sense of God, the sense of divine, burbles back up to the surface. And we're going to see more of that as we look at evidence from within in the next few weeks. But I think there are a variety of ways we do this. For some of us, what we do is we preoccupy ourselves by just doing tasks. Uh, we work really hard. We're, we're diligent at school, and we're just concerned about the thing that's right in front of our face. And so we're not thinking about the bigger questions, and that's a way to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But I think that there are a number of intellectual ways that we try to suppress the truth. I think one of the main ways today is this concept of scientism. Scientism is the belief that science gives us really the only objective truth that we can possess. That really it's the guide to truth. Yet there are a number of problems with this view. You know, you hear some people say science has replaced our need for faith. First of all, I think science fails to answer some of the biggest questions in life. Francis Collins, who is the former director of the Human Genome Project, so an acclaimed scientist, says, science is powerless to answer questions such as, why did the universe come into being? What is the meaning of human existence? What happens after we die? So here's a guy who is a brilliant scientist, who passionately pursues scientific inquiry, who's at the very top step of academia in his field, and yet he admits that science doesn't answer all of life's questions. Because once you start asking questions like, what's the meaning of my life? We're no longer talking about the physical realm. We're talking about the metaphysical realm. Things that fall outside of the physical world outside of naturalism. In addition to this, I think every human being lives by faith. Now that might be a little controversial if you're a science-minded person or if you consider yourself a rationalistic person. I remember a number of years ago, I was leading a high school Bible study and there was this student who was a real skeptic, really smart, always had like a list of questions every time he attended our home church and we would spend almost the entire night just answering his questions. 
And I remember one time I picked him up on the way to home church and a number of guys were in the car and we started talking about the concept of faith. And he said, well, faith, that's just, you know, people have faith. There are some people who live by faith, but that's not me. I'm a rationalistic person. I believe in science. I don't believe in faith. And I said, well, I think that those things are compatible. I think that you can believe in science and objective things while also exercising faith. In fact, I think that every single person exercises a certain amount of faith. And he had this confused look on his face. So I started to explain. I said, you know, a couple weeks ago, I got my brakes checked. And probably from that time until today, I probably have applied my brakes a thousand times and they work pretty well. Probably on the way to pick you up, I probably applied my, my brakes 35, 40 times, and in each case, it stopped. And I said, so even though I have really good evidence to believe that my brakes are working, I really don't have 100% certainty that it's gonna work in every single case. And you know, he was, he was in the back seat sort of leaning in intently listening to this conversation. I said, for example, as we head toward this intersection, how do we know that my brakes are actually gonna stop this car as we are careening toward the middle of Cleveland Avenue and 161 going 50 miles an hour? And he had this surprised look in his face as I slammed on the brakes and his face bounced off the headrest and threw him back into the seat. So I threw my car into reverse and backed out of the intersection and I said, I'm glad my brakes worked that time. <laughs> and you know, what I was trying to demonstrate to him was, we may have really good evidence for things, but at the end of the day, we can't have 100% certainty. So there's an element of belief or trust that we need to place in the evidence we have. Likewise, when we talk about faith, we're not talking about blind faith, we're not talking about a leap of faith, we're talking about evidence-based faith or trust in the fact that there is good evidence to believe in God. I think one of the real fa fatal errors of scientism is the claim that scientism makes. Bertrand Russell, the famed logician and philosopher, says whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods and what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. That's an unfortunate statement from a guy who's trained in logic. Because what he's saying here is something that is self-falsifiable. It's inherently contradictory. The way we can identify this is asking the question, how does he know? After all, his statement isn't a, a statement of scientific fact. And so therefore, what he's saying cannot be known by human inquiry. <clears throat> I like what John Lennox says on this. He says, what destroys scientism completely is the fatal flaw of self-contradiction that runs throughout it. Scientism does not need to be refuted by external argument. It self-destructs. 
He says, for the statement that only science can lead to truth is not itself deduced from science. It's not a scientific statement, but rather a statement about science. He says, therefore, if scientism's basic principle is true, the statement expressing scientism must be false. Scientism refutes itself, hence it's incoherent. Good point. And so it's self-refuting. Another thing that you see with scientism is that people claim that now that we understand the mechanisms driving the universe, we can conclude that there was no God who designed the universe. But again, to use another illustration, you know, imagine if you took an old Model T Ford and threw it into the middle of a remote village filled with native people. You know, they might crowd around it and because of their ignorance of science, might conclude that what animates this machine or this thing, the Model T, is that there is a God named Mr. Ford inside of the vehicle. And when the engine doesn't run well, it means that Mr. Ford is angry. And so we must appease him in some ways. But when the engine works well, conversely, it means that we have pleased him in some way. Now imagine if one of these native people went off to school, earned a degree in engineering in return. And he disassembled the engine of this Model T only to find that there was no Mr. Ford inside the engine he would realize that the principles of combustion explain how the Model T works and there's no real need to explain uh, that it's Mr. Ford who's animating this, this engine. Now what if he took the next step and said, as a result of these principles, it's no longer necessary, in fact it's impossible to believe in an individual named Mr. Ford who created this vehicle. At that point, he would be making a logical fallacy, a categorical error. In the same way, to be able to say that we understand the impersonal forces of nature in the world that drive what we see, that doesn't necessarily mean that we can then exclude a designer, someone who created these natural laws and put them into motion. really a scientific or mathematical law presupposes an agent, someone who um, put these into place. Think about the simple law of arithmetic. One plus one equals two. That never brought about anything by itself. It sure as hell hasn't put any money in my bank account, right? If I put $1,000 into my bank account and a month later put another $1,000, When I look at my bank statement, I can use the law of arithmetic to determine that 1,000 plus 1,000 equals 2,000. But let's say I decided I was going to deposit $100 and allow the law of arithmetic to bring more money into my account, I'd remain pretty broke. And so in the same way, when we start talking about the laws of nature creating things, we don't really understand that what what we're talking about here is descriptive of the world. That these things by themselves cannot produce things. John Lennox says, the world of strict naturalism in which clever um, mathematical laws 
all by themselves bring the universe and life into existence is pure, and one might add, poor fiction. To call it science fiction would besmirch the name of science. He's an Englishman, so he can say that. So, um, I think he's right on here. There are a number of real problems with scientism, and yet I think that when you look at this concept of scientism, almost everyone that you meet believes that science can explain everything, that it can answer all questions, including questions about life. Another thing you'll see is that people will say faith stifles scientific inquiry. After all, you see the church try to put a gag order on Galileo. And um, really, he was persecuted for his desire to advance science. And yet, really, the tables have turned because in the 16th century, people tried to halt scientific progress because it threatened belief in God. Ironically, today in the 21st century, people are resistant to scientific ideas because it threatens this idea that God might exist. And it might actually add to to the probability that he's real. Paul says in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that we or they are without excuse. So he points out that God's eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made. In other words, you know, when you look out into the night sky and you marvel at the vastness of the galaxy and of the universe, that really it points us to the creator. That when we look at how intricate the world works, how incredible life is, how complex it is, that when we marvel at that, we're marveling at God's creation, that these things are artifacts of God and and what he's made. And the reason why God left those artifacts was to lead us to him, to help us realize that he has an eternal uh, nature and a divine nature that created all these things we see. And I think uh, as we look at modern science, one of the things that I'm amazed by is the fact that science, far from disproving God, in my opinion, in fact gives quite a bit of evidence for belief in God. One area that I think is amazing is this concept of a finely tuned universe. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but um, in the early 1900s, most people believed that the universe had no beginning and no end. Uh, And yet what's interesting is that in 1929, Edwin Hubble made a shocking discovery. He saw this thing called red shift which he inferred suggested that the universe was actually expanding. And so he concluded, along with other scientists, that there was this thing called the Big Bang. They estimated that the the universe has been around for about 14 billion years and that 
at the initial point when the universe began, that there was a mathematical point that, was, that contained really all the mass and energy of the entire universe, and at some point, it exploded and created the universe in which we live. And so that revolutionized people's thinking about the universe and cosmology. Again, John Lennox says, another well-known scientist who found the idea of beginning repugnant is Sir John Maddox, a former editor of Nature, a reputable magazine for science. He pronounced the idea of beginning thoroughly unacceptable because it implied an ultimate origin of our world and gave creationists ample justification for their beliefs. It's rather ironic that in the 16th century, some people resisted advances in science because they seemed to threaten belief in God, whereas in the 20th century, scientific ideas of a beginning have been resisted because they threatened to increase the plausibility of belief in God. One of the things that's really interesting is that when you look at our universe, there are about 30 constants that, according to scientists, are so finely tuned that even if one of these constants was off by even a small amount, that it would have cataclysmic um, uh, consequences on, on the universe, such that it would make the universe life-prohibiting. And, you know, we're not really talking about um, Christian scientists here. Here's a list of agnostic or atheistic physicists or astrophysicists who totally believe that these constants are finely tuned. <clears throat> Here are the 34 constants that most scientists agree upon. Um, some believe that there are more. But these are the ones that they agree are the finely tuned constants. For example, you have the strong nuclear force. And this describes the force felt between protons and neutrons within a nucleus of an atom. And if this was off, um, a larger by just even a little, a little bit, no hydrogen would form and atomic nuclei from most essential life elements would be unstable, thus no life chemistry. If it was smaller, even by a small degree, no elements heavier than hydrogen would form, again, there would be no life chemistry. Take the, the weak nuclear force. Uh, this describes the mechanism of, of interaction between um, uh, subatomic particles. And it's related to this concept of uh, radioactive decay in atoms. If it was different in one part in 10 to the 4, there would be no supernovae, which are supernovas, plural, which it would exist, which create heavy elements. <clears throat> and then take this one, the ratio of number of protons to electrons. If different in one part in 10 to the 36, there would be no galaxies, stars, or planets that would form just extremely diffuse gas. So here's just a small sampling, but you know, think about that number, one part in 10 to the 36. That's a really small number. It's really hard to actually wrap your mind around that number. Stephen Hawking, the famed astrophysicist says, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers like the size 
of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of masses of the proton and the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. For example, if the electric charge of the electron had been only slightly different, stars would either have been unable to burn hydrogen or, and helium, or else they would not have exploded. It seems clear that there are relatively few ranges of values for the numbers that would allow the development of any form of intelligent life. Most sets of values would give rise to universes that, although they might be very beautiful, would contain no one able to wonder at that beauty. In other words, it would have been life prohibitive. And again, we're talking about a scientist who was agnostic. Paul Davies, uh, the cosmologist and astrophysicist from ASU says, it's virtually impossible that the universe came to have these correct parameters of life by chance because so many of these numbers must all lie in such a small range of values. If the initial explosion of the Big Bang had differed in strength by as little as one part in 10 to the 60, the universe would have either quickly collapsed back onto itself or expanded way too rapidly for stars to form. In either case, life would be impossible. An accuracy of one part in 10 to the 60 can be compared to firing a bullet at one, a one inch target on the other side of the observable universe 20 billion light years away and hitting the target. Well, you might say, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good marksman. <laughs> well, the problem with that is you would also have to do it blindly because if you took aim at that target and hit it, we introduce intent. And if we introduce intent, we're talking about design. Richard Dawkins, hailed as the high priest of atheism, he is a biologist at Oxford University, he says, physicists have calculated that if the laws and constants of physics have been even slightly different, the universe would have developed in such a way that life would have been impossible. Different physicists put it different ways, but, but the conclusion is always much the same. It's indeed perfectly plausible that there is only one way for a universe to be, but why did that one way have to be such a setup for our eventual evolution? So even Richard Dawkins a staunch atheist, an ardent atheist, admits that these constants point to some sort of fine-tuning that is inexplicable to him. Let's think about some odds to give us a point of comparison. Getting a royal flush in poker on the first five cards dealt, 649,000 to one. That's pretty low probability, right? Should be a little suspicious if... Uh, you're playing poker with somebody for money and they get a royal flush on the first five uh, cards dealt. Hitting the Powerball jackpot. That's one in 300 million. Pretty bad odds. Of becoming president of the United States. One in 10 million. Of a meteor landing on your house. That's 182 trillion to one. Very unlikely. Okay. Chance of an American home having at least one container of ice cream in the freezer. Nine in ten. <laughs> of striking it rich on the antiques uh, roadshow. 60,000 to one. 
I can verify that. I watch lots of Antiques Roadshow and people hit it big all the time. Of dying from your pajamas catching on fire. One in 30 million, okay? What about this one of LeBron James overtaking Michael Jordan as the greatest basketball player of all time? Zero percent. See, I just called you guys all out for being bandwagon fans. What about against the formation of the universe? We're talking about one in 10 trillion to the 124th power. I mean, this number is mind-boggling. I mean, they, they literally had to come up with a word to describe a number this small. It's called infinitesimal. Just to give you an idea of how many zeros are in this number, it would be this. That's 1,240 zeros. Um, I thought I would uh, show you guys a video that I thought summarizes this in a visual form. It's a pretty excellent, uh, excellent video. I didn't make it, but um, I think it depicts what we're talking about pretty well. From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would, again, be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, 
they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. I feel like that uh, video captures it pretty well. Um, <clears throat> just to summarize here, Robert Jastrow says the details differ, but the essential elements in the astrono uh, astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. We scientists didn't expect to find evidence for an abrupt beginning because we have had until fairly recently such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. For the scientists who's lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He's scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He's greeted by a, th a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. And Jastrow, he's not a theist, he's an agnostic. And yet, he understands the implication of these things, of this finely tuned universe. Now, there are some naturalistic responses. One is the multiverse, namely that there are many, maybe on the order of millions, trillions of other universes. And so, if you have millions of parallel universes, you're bound to hit the jackpot at some point. And so one way to think about this is that, you know, if you had a million-sided die and you said, I'm going to roll a five, and it hits five, you'd be like, that's amazing. But it doesn't seem highly improbable to think that something like that would happen. But the response to this would be, it would be mistaken to think that that's all it would be. First of all, um, the multiverse is something that we cannot actually observe, uh, as we'll see. Secondly, when we use that illustration of a million-sided die, it's more accurate to say that we roll a trillion-sided die and we say, I'm gonna hit a five, and you do that 124 times in a row. That's more like what we're talking about here. Brian Greene, um, one of the leading figures uh, for string theory and multiverse, admits it will be extremely hard, if not impossible, for us to ever know if the multiverse picture is even true. Even if there are other universes, we can imagine that they will never come into contact with any of them. And so he posits this theory of the multiverse, and yet he admits there's probably no way that we could ever empirically verify the existence of these other universes. John Lennox comments, I'm tempted to add that belief in God seems an infinitely more rational option if the alternative is to believe that every other universe that possibly can exist does exist, including one in which Richard Dawkins is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Richard Hitchens the Pope, and Billy Graham has just been voted Atheist of the Year. Um, I think one way to look at this is when we, when we look at this concept of the multiverse, um, 
really, it doesn't offer a satisfying explanation to this finely tuned universe. You know, what we really have here is something that smells of design. You know, imagine if you were charged with murder and sentenced to death, and so the captain of the prison guard brought you out to the firing squad, and you had 10 or 20 trained marksmen who lifted up their rifle, and as they blindfold you, you hear uh, the executioner yell, fire! And after the smoke clears, you start feeling your body, and you don't feel any bullet holes, and you take off your blindfold, and you look around, and you haven't been shot. But there's a silhouette of your body on the wall that's marked by bullet holes. And so you go to the prison, and you're like, man, tell your, your cellmate, crazy. Just by chance, these expert marksmen took shots at me during my execution. They all missed. And of course, what, what does your cellmate say? He says, that's ridiculous. They intended to miss. And in the same way, for us to conclude that these constants point to mere chance is really like saying that something like that event happened by complete coincidence. Well, going back to Romans 1, Paul says that because of what we see in nature, because of what we see out in creation, that we are able to identify God's divine nature and his eternal power such that we are without excuse. This is actually um, the word, it comes from the root word apology or apologetics. An apology, meaning the opposite, without excuse or rational explanation. And yet, I think if you're sitting here as a skeptic or somebody who's investigating Christianity for the first time, you might think to yourself, this is intriguing. But I'm not sure that I can say that I'm, that I'm fully convinced. Well, why not join us next week to investigate more evidence for God's existence? We're going to talk a little bit more about science. And um, maybe as you sit through this series for over the next few weeks, that your eyes will be open to the real evidence that exists about God. For some of us, though, we have been sitting and listening to Bible teaching for a while. People have been providing evidence for belief in Christianity. We know about the message of Christ, and yet we feel like we're sort of on the bubble. We're not exactly sure if we should take that next step and place our trust in Christ. One thing that you should consider is that God is offering you salvation. And if you simply place your trust in him, he will grant that to you. And so tonight as we end, we're gonna have an opportunity to pray together. And this is your opportunity to turn to God. Not out loud, but in your heart and just ask God to come into your life. And the moment that you do that, God promises that he will forge a relationship with you that will never end. Okay, why don't we just spend a little bit of time in prayer. Yes, Father, we are in awe of your intellect and your power as we look at this uh, incredible, incredible argument for the fine-tuning of the universe 
it leads me to believe that you are not only real, but also that um, if you have directed um, these constants in the universe, that um, you have control even over the circumstances that come into my life and that you are indeed sovereign. And so I pray as we uh, study this that it would bolster our faith in you and uh, cause us to have more confidence in your power um, and also that it would, it would lead us to greater trust in you. I pray finally for those of us, Lord, who uh, might be on the cusp of inviting you into our lives. I pray that we would uh, have the courage and see that the evidence that we have been investigating really points to you. And we thank you for anybody who invited you into their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.